Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be a church that tries to advocate for the needs of others. We pray for continued wisdom and understanding as we seek to discern what our specific role looks like, both individually and corporately. God, and yet at the same time, we pray that more than anything, our efforts, whether it's in the arena of foster care adoption or, or missions or going to the nations or just going across the street, wherever you lead us, God, that we would be able to continually rest in the strong assurances of a father's love. And God, that is what we want to further understand today. And so as we go to your holy word and go to the sacred text, God, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to better receive and know and feel and trust your love for us. And so we submit ourselves to you, Father, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, y'all, so I will tell you that um, whether you believe it or not, whenever we plan these services, we are mindful of your time. Um, But I will tell you that obviously there are some services that go longer than others, some that go shorter. Uh, And at the end of the day, if you want to know my sense of it, I will just tell you, I'm not here for a schedule. I'm here for the Spirit of God. So we may go a little bit longer today, and that's okay. Right? And so let's just let the Spirit of God work within us and through us as a result of that. Obviously, we've already had it called to your attention that today is Missions Month, or what begins Missions Month here within our church is uh, indicated with all the flags around you. you. We also have designated this as kind of Orphan Sunday, which is a good reminder. It's not just a local concern, it's a global one. And we have several exciting things coming up through the course of this month, as you heard Jason mention earlier in the announcements. And I really look forward to going through this month with you. Missions is a huge part of my heart and my life, and I love being a part of a church that shares that passion. And so I'm excited for us to explore that further. Now, part of what we'll do to get things kicked off today is to continue this series through parables. And if you remember, if you were here with us last week, we started a particular theme by looking at these parables in Luke chapter 15 that speak to the question of lostness. And that was the question that we talked about last week. What does it mean to be lost as we consider the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin? Well, today we're going to continue that discussion by looking at this very well-known parable that you saw kind of rephrased and summarized in the children's message, what is often known as the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And that's an appropriate title and description for it, but I would encourage you today to not so much look at it through the lens of what it means to be the lost son, but to look at this story through the lens of what does it mean to have a loving father. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. So turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to follow along. We're going to read the parable of the lost son, and it's going to pick up in verse 11 and through the end of the chapter. Here's how it reads. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, 
I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, has come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right, so such a powerful and meaningful parable for us to look at this morning. And where I really want to begin is to think through a little bit about the start of this story with the son approaching his father asking for his share of the inheritance. It's a very interesting beginning And part of what I want us to consider is why. What has happened at this point to lead this son to come to his father and ask for his inheritance? What is it that has contributed to this moment? Because part of what we're seeing here is a different sort of lostness than what we've talked about up to this point with these parables. right? If you think about how a sheep wanders from the fold, very rarely does the sheep just set off in a dead sprint away from a shepherd. Right? When a sheep gets lost, it's this gradual drifting, this failing to pay attention. The next thing they know, they're, they're detached and without the flock. Right? You think about a coin that was lost. That, that was accidental, almost circumstantial. A reminder that there are moments in our lives where certain circumstances take place, accidents take place, and then all of a sudden, we feel disconnected and lost. Right? This is different. Right? This is a, a defiance. This is a rebellion. This son has come to his father and said, I want to leave. Now, the weight of this decision is found in understanding Judaic culture, right? Asking for his portion of the estate. What we know is that the estate was all the property that allowed the families to live and have sustainability. It's all their wealth, all their, their prosperity. And so here comes the son. And in, in, in Judaic culture, a, a father was not allowed to just give away his estate to whoever he wanted, right? He was bound by Judaic law to give at least two-thirds of his estate to his oldest son. And the remaining third would go to his youngest son or sons to be divided among them. And so this younger son is coming and asking for his third. And so if you were to consider the legal implications, the social consequences of such a decision, a lot of of scholars and other uh, uh, theologians have written a great deal about the ramifications of such a decision. And, And we don't really have the ability to pinpoint with great precision all the different legal and social consequences from this decision. But what we do know, without a doubt, is that this was the dissolving of a family. And that's tragic. So this story begins with tragedy. A family is broken. And as tragic as it is for us to see that in an earthly standard, like we, we see this all the time, homes that are broken, families that are torn apart, and as tragic as those examples are, how much more tragic when we see that it's not just an earthly experience, but a heavenly one. 
and a rebellion not just against an earthly father, but a heavenly father. That's what the story is bringing to light. And so it necessitates and demands us to ask the question, why? Why is he leaving his father? How did he come to this point to demonstrate such rebellion? I'm curious how you would answer that question. I know for me, if I were going to suggest one primary reason for this act of defiance, it would be pride. You ever struggle with pride? I think your answer to that question probably depends upon how you define pride. Because pride does not always equate to blatant arrogance or narcissism, though those do apply. Right? Pride, at its core, what I've submitted to you on several occasions before is that pride is really the root of almost every sin, if not all of them. Because pride is fundamentally this decision that says, I'm gonna go my own way. I'm gonna do this on my own. That's really what the son is saying to the father. Right? I'm gonna go live on my own. I don't need you anymore. And that's the seed of pride. And it sounds a lot like what we hear in the garden, doesn't it? Like if you were to flip back to Genesis 3 and see how all of this fall and this human nature and this sinful way really begins, it starts with that moment, right? It wasn't just breaking this arbitrary rule where you ate some fruit and this was the consequence for breaking the rule. What was the temptation? The temptation that was whispered in the ears of humanity was you will be like God. Your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil. The temptation was, I can do this on my own. I can decide what is good and evil, right and wrong for myself. I don't need God. And that's what started it all. If you really break through every sort of understanding and manifestation of sin, that tends to be something that is at its core. This impulse that we have to go our own way, decide right and wrong for ourselves, and to do it without God. It's pride, right? And, and this is the sort of decision that we see taking place with the son. I don't need you. And so once he chooses to go his own way, we see further evidence that this is a prideful disposition by the behavior and the conduct that he demonstrates once he's on his own. Look at how it's described in the following verses. Squandered in wild living. The word squandered means waste. Wild living means to be reckless or to get, engage in debauchery. Right? And so this is why we often refer to this parable as the prodigal son, because prodigal means to be reckless and wasteful. It's a perfect description that captures this conduct and this behavior that the son is demonstrating. So when he engages in this on my own thinking, it results in this self-indulgent lifestyle. That's what pride does, right? When we decide to go our own way, we see it manifest itself with some sort of worldview and lifestyle that allows us to gratify our own sinful, self-centered desires. I think of different ways that this can materialize. It can come through greed, right? I just need one more thing to give me a sense of luxury, to give myself a sense of convenience, a sense of comfort. It comes through the pursuit of pleasure, right? I just want one more drink, one more hit, one more look at a screen, whatever it is, something that allows me to indulge whatever I think feels good in the moment. It comes through a sense of desiring power or status, anything that I can achieve to allow other people to see me as important or influential or significant can come through stubbornness, right? A, a, a way in which we arrive at a, this idea that what I think, what I see has to be the right way. And if you don't agree with me, don't follow along with me, then you're in the wrong. 
right? There's so many different ways that we can pursue this spirit of pride. And what we discover is that that sort of self-centered, sort of self-absorbed lifestyle ultimately leads to destruction. It tends to destroy ourselves and everyone else around us. And that's the story of the son, right? He gives in to this prideful temptation, decides to go his own way, and it leads to his demise, right? Now, I want us to think about the other factors that contributed to his despair and contributed to this downfall of this younger son, because it's easy for us to really kind of skip over them, right? As Americans, with this Western viewpoint, we tend to focus in on that word squandered his wealth, and that was his fatal flaw, and that's really where we focus most of our attention, but there were other things that took place, weren't there? After he squanders his wealth, what happens? There's a severe famine in the land. Now, that's pretty important for us to give consideration to, right? Because what that should serve as a reminder to for each of us is that sometimes when we go through life, things are going to happen that are beyond our control, right? This young son, he didn't cause the famine, right? And this is not a situation where it's like, well, I just didn't have enough money to buy a meal. Like, literally across the land, there is a food shortage and people are starving, right? There are going to be moments where we encounter circumstances and situations and seasons that are beyond our control, could be a severe famine or a global pandemic or an outbreak of war or a cancer diagnosis or the tragic loss of a loved one. Pick your tragedy, pick pick the adversity, right? There are going to be these moments where we encounter these situations and these circumstances that are beyond our control. The question is, will we be prepared for it? And by prepared, I don't mean we have enough money and savings, but spiritually, like will your heart be ready to know how to endure and to navigate those moments of adversity, to find the strength and resilience to to move on? The son had not prepared himself, right? His way of pride and sinful self-indulgence had led him to encounter the season of the severe famine in a manner that it was now beyond his control and it made him that much more vulnerable. So he becomes desperate. What's he do? He hires himself out and ultimately finds himself in one of the most shameful and humiliating situations you could ever imagine if you were a Jew. Right? Pigs were the most detestable of animals, seen to be unclean, and not only is this young son having to hire himself out to feed these pigs, he's actually at a place where he's craving the very food that they are getting. That's how desperate he is. Right? He, this, this way of pride has led to this incredibly humbling and humiliating and shameful situation. You ever been there? You ever been in scenarios like that? Where your choices... Your, your choices for momentary pleasure rather than long-term good have resulted in a season of complete shame and embarrassment and humiliation. Very difficult to endure, very uh, deflating and crippling to go through those moments, which is what leads to this other key ingredient to his demise that I don't want us to miss. Right? It's offered there at the concluding paragraph that describes his despair. Did you see it? It says, and no one gave him anything. Again, it's easy for us to skip over this because through that American and and westernized lens, we are the individuals, right? We champion this self-sufficient, individualized culture, right? And so when you're in a troubling situation, well, you got to figure out how to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? That tends to be 
how we think about things. But what we're seeing here described was not just the squandering of wealth, but the squandering of community. He was alone. No one there to help him. Right? The, the, the people that, that were supposed to be there, right? That net, that network of support that is there to catch you when you fall, when you go through those moments to restore you, was not there. No one gave him anything. As he left his father, he left his family, he left his country. He hadn't just squandered wealth, he had squandered relationships. And so when we read what he's done, it forces us to offer up a similar level of introspection. And a question we should all ask ourselves this morning is, am I, am I building community or diminishing it? Like, am I pouring into relationships that can be there for me when I find similar moments of despair and, and difficulty? Or am I on this path towards isolation and loneliness so that when those moments of vulnerability comes, I have no one there to really help? Are you building community or diminishing it? We see that this son was in complete desperation, which is what allows him to hit rock bottom and enter into this theme of repentance. That's what every parable that we've been reading has in, th- in, in commonality, right? Whether it's the lost sheep, the coin, or now the son, is that it's really a story about repentance. And what I love about the story of the prodigal son here is that it gives us a beautiful insight and a very helpful progression so that we can think rightly about repentance, because again, a lot of times we don't even really, it's a churchy word, we throw it out there, we think about it, we don't really know what that means, we don't really know how to practice it. And I think this story of this son gives us a great depiction of it. What is the first thing it says? He came to his senses. I love that. Right, there was a moment of clarity, a moment of realization. And think about everything that he reasons within his mind as he comes to his senses. The first is that he recognizes that he's in a bad spot. Right? He, he acknowledges this is not worked out. It is this realization of his own brokenness and his own mistakes. That's where it starts. Right? He's no longer trying to rationalize it, no longer trying to defend it, no longer trying to rescue himself from it. He, he realizes, I have messed up. Repentance begins with every heart recognizing, I am broken and I'm sinful. It starts there. It starts with that clarity. And so when he gets that clarity, realizing he's made a mistake, what does he decide? He says, I need to go back. I need to go back to the Father. That is the essence of repentance. I was going this way, and now I need to turn and go a new direction. Right? It takes and requires that shifting, that, that refocusing, that redirecting. And so he discovers and realizes, I've got to do that. I've got to return to the Father. And yet if I'm going to pursue that, this son reasons in his mind, that's going to require confession, what will I say when I go back to this father? I'm going to have to confess and acknowledge, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Bring me back just as a hired servant. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He recognizes that repentance is not just a recognition of my brokenness and not just a turning, but a confession of those things and then also bringing forth a resolution of a new way forward. Right? What I love about what the son is reasoning here is he doesn't expect things to just go back to the way they were. He sees something very important that we all need to recognize in our own lives. There is a consequence for his action. Right? When we pursue repentance, yes, we long for mercy, we long for grace, we long for forgiveness, and those things are all waiting, but we also have to recognize consequences for our decisions. 
He recognizes it. Things can't go back to just the way they were. And yet at the same time, what he resolves is that if I'm going to chart this new course and I'm going to pursue a, a reconnection with the Father, the new avenue forward should require of me a path of servanthood and humility. So that's where repentance leads us, right? When we return and we make that shift, it doesn't take us back to this framework and this mindset of pride. It should lead us to a new course and a new chart, a new disposition that is anchored in humility and servanthood, right? And what we discover is that the son is reasoned in his mind that repentance is not just I'm going to ask for an apology or offer an apology. I want change. <laughs> That's what repentance is. Too often we reduce it in our own understanding that I'm just going to come forward, I'm just going to say I'm sorry. But it's not enough just to say I'm sorry. We really need to come forward and say, but I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. And that's what the son has reasoned in his mind. But this is what becomes, in my mind, one of the most beautiful verses in the entire parable, Luke 15, 20. After he's come to his senses and he's reasoned these things, what does he do? So he gets up and he goes to the father. I love that. Right? Repentance is not a mindset. It's an action. Right? He doesn't just think it. He gets up and he goes. Right? It requires a journey. Now think about the difficulty of this journey. Right? Think about this for a moment. Okay? For this son to resolve to go home, we have to realize that it's not like he's just in the next room and he can just walk down the hall and say, hey, Dad, I'm sorry. It's not like he lives in our world of technology and he can just pull out his phone and text and be like, man, I'm really sorry for what I said to you the other day. Like to journey home from a distant country without food, without shoes, is a long and arduous journey. That is often the road of repentance. It is not often very quick and easy, but a long journey that awaits us. And when you think about this son, don't you know there were moments where he probably thought to himself, this is too difficult. Man, I don't, I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have the resolve. Like, this would be so much easier if I just stayed where I am. Don't you know there were moments where he thought, it's just so much easier to quit and give up. And I guarantee you, if you pursue some avenue of repentance, you're going to have those same thoughts. This is too hard. This is too challenging. Wouldn't it just be easier to quit and give up and stay where I am? And so when you find yourself overwhelmed with those thoughts and those moments, here's what I would encourage you to do. Do exactly what the son did. Take the journey one step at a time. Just one step at a time. And so that's really my question for you this morning, right? Like, what is the next step for you? What would be the next step for you today? If the Lord's calling any sort of shifting in your life, any sort of change in your life, what is the next step that he would be asking you to faithfully take? Some of us in this room, man, we need to pursue reconciliation with a friend, with a loved one, and maybe that next step is just saying, I'm sorry. Right? Some of us, we need to put down the drink. We need to quit taking the hit. We need to keep the screen closed. Maybe we need to say no to a negative influence. What is the next step for you? Take the next 
step. Right? What we discover through this process that it is not easy, it does take time, it does take resolve, but a lot of times we can find that motivation, we can find that encouragement because of what we know is awaiting us. And that's where, again, I love thinking about what this son was likely thinking. Because don't you know in the middle of that journey home, he wasn't just overwhelmed with the difficulty of the actual journey itself, but he kept coming back to this question, what is my father going to say? How is he going to respond? Will he receive me? Don't you know that was the question he was asking himself? And isn't that the question we ask so often as well? Especially when we think about how we pursue reconciliation in an earthly standpoint, right? Like maybe you are in a situation where you need to go and ask for forgiveness from someone. And when we think about when we are put in those situations, a lot of times we don't know how people are gonna respond. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And the unknown of other people's response creates that fear, it creates that apprehension. And a lot of times because we see that from an earthly perspective, we project that upon God. How will he respond? And he's seen my ways. He's seen my mistakes. He's known what I've done. Is he really going to receive me? What will my father say? And that's where this story finds so much strength and beauty because it points us to the father's heart. So the son has gotten up and he's going. He's on this journey. And what do we discover about the father? That he's standing and waiting. Looking off into the horizon, waiting to see his son. And when he sees his son, he runs to him and he embraces him, filled with compassion. Do we understand how incredible that is? I want us to this morning. I don't want us just to to hear that part of the story. I want us to feel that part of the story. And that can be challenging because when you hear the word father, I wonder what image comes to mind. For many of us in this room, it's a positive image, something that we can think back upon or consider even in this moment and be truly grateful for because of the wonderful influence that we have of a father figure in our lives. Others of us have not been so fortunate. And that word father carries a certain pain certain sense of abandonment, certain sense of frustration. We've been wounded by that word. So it's not always easy to connect to stories like this. But what I'm willing to to assume today is that regardless of where you may be in your association with that word father, whether it's been a gift or one that you haven't been able to be a beneficiary of, you've had people in your life nonetheless who have stood in the gap Father figures, if you will, that in those moments of need have shown you what it means to be loved. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. Just close your eyes. And I want you to picture that father in your life. Go back to a moment. Go back to a situation where you felt your father hug you. Maybe it was in a moment of joyful celebration. Maybe in a moment where you needed comfort. But put yourself back in that moment and feel 
the strength and the power of a father's embrace and a father's love. Open your eyes. What will your father do when you come back? He embraces you. That's what he does. So don't miss this. Right? It's not like the father stands there and says, well, let me wait and see what he has to say for himself. Let's hear this apology. Let's make sure he's learned his lesson. He doesn't do any of that. He runs to his son and the embrace brings about the confession. The confession doesn't bring about the embrace. And so his son offers up, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. And we see the beauty and the fruition of this repentance, and it erupts in celebration. Joyful celebration, because that's what we're called to do when we see repentance unfold. The father says, go, get the fattened calf, go get the, the robe, the ring, the sandals, put them on, my son. All of these are symbols of status, of welcoming, of importance. All these things show us just how drastically the son's circumstances have changed. He went from being poor in despair and in alone to now being welcomed and received. And what we see is that the father's love leads to restoration. That's the path of repentance. Right? It doesn't happen overnight all the time, but it does lead us towards restoration. And so let me speak very clearly to you today. If your marriage is in shambles, there is nothing that God can't restore. If you are gripped with depression, there is nothing that God's reach can't touch. If you're troubled with anger or malice or rage or selfishness or greed or lust, whatever it is, nothing is beyond the reach of God's restorative but be clear, let me be clear. When we find those things, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything out here becomes easy. It goes back to the way that we want it. The work of restoration isn't always out here, it's in here. Like a surgeon upon our heart, which is the most important place for repentance and restoration to really take place. And that's exactly what we're seeing unfold. And so as Jesus is telling this story, we sit and we listen and we marvel at the love of the Father. And with it comes an implied question, do we carry a similar heart? Do we share this heart of a father? Would we welcome the repentant sinner just as this father has? Don't forget, that was the question at hand as these Pharisees muttered to one another, look at this Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners. And so that's the question at hand, and as, as Jesus recognizes that, it leads to the final chapter of the parable where we are introduced to one more character that brings that contrast and that question to greater clarity, the older brother. And what we discover is that there's this older son, this firstborn who has faithfully been working for his father the whole time. And once he hears this commotion, this music, this dancing, he inquires, what is this? And he discovers that the celebration is a response to his younger brother's return. And rather than respond as his father did, with compassion and grace, he responds with anger. Rather than embracing this younger brother, he refuses to go in. And so the father comes out and pleads with the older brother and listen to his response. I've worked for you. I've slayed for you. You've never given me 
anything. And what we see here once again is that though it's manifested itself differently, it's still pride. Look at what I've done for you. Look what you haven't done for me. It's that self-absorbed view of the world. And ultimately what I believe the older brother represents for us is this perspective of resentment. Right, that, that if we're gonna really consider this parable through the lens of how do we receive the repentant sinner, then we have a choice. We will either respond with grace and forgiveness or resentment. And what we discover is that if we choose to live a life of resentment where we begin to hold those things over against people who have wronged us, don't you know this older brother was wounded by his younger brother's decision? Their family fell apart. Don't you know he was angry? Don't you know it hurt him? And so he's deciding to live in that resentment. And what resentment does is it clouds our vision to see the work of God. It's never the better choice. And so there we have a very powerful contrast as Jesus tells this story. Which heart will you have? The heart of the father or the heart of the older brother? How would you receive the sinner who comes home? And that's really the question that I would end with this morning. Where is your heart? Right, if you think about all the different ways that we can latch on to this parable, we'd have to recognize that for some of us, our hearts are maybe still down that path where we're saying, I'm gonna go my own way. We can play church, we can figure out this game, but ultimately by our life and our actions, we're saying, I'm doing this on my own. Some of us, our heart is in that spirit of repentance and we're trying to come back to the, to the Father and we're on that journey. Some of us, maybe we're the ones who have been wronged and we have to learn from the Father's love and see how we would welcome others. Some of us have to let go of resentment because of the way others have treated us. Where is your heart this morning? How would you respond? Just a couple of practical things that I would say as we consider this parable this morning to wrap us up. The first is this. Thinking about this parable on a day like Orphan Sunday carries a certain weight to it in my mind. And it's hard to, to nail down these statistics, but based on my research this past week, in our county alone, our county, in the month of September, there were 661 children in the foster care system. So when I read this parable and I read the scripture, and I think about the fact that the church is called to be one of the main champions of a father's love. I don't see how it could be possible that we would allow that many children to go without a father's love on our watch. If we're truly going to believe it and advocate of it and, and receive it personally and champion that message of this gospel that God loves all people and loves us, how could we possibly let that many children not find a loving home and know of that loving father? And so we have to ask ourselves, man, what role can I play if I'm going to seriously champion the Father's love and I need to be an ambassador of it here in this community? Another group that I want to talk to this morning very briefly is I want to talk to the men, especially if you carry the title Father. I want you to think about how sacred it is to have that title. I want you to ask yourself if you're stewarding that responsibility well. What are your children seeing you? Do they see the strength and the resiliency and the compassion of a father's love? 
Like, do we recognize that our representation is going to greatly influence how they see and understand God's love? Are you stewarding it well? Right? The world needs now more than ever godly men who will embrace that role, that sacred role as father and demonstrate consistently what it means to carry a father's love to those they meet. But for all of us this morning, regardless of what group we find ourselves in, my hope and my prayer is that we would leave here today, each and every one of us, in awe and marveling at the strength and the power of a father's love. It's a very powerful image. In the Old Testament, we constantly see this reference to God as king. In the New Testament, it shifts to more of an image of father. And there's an important distinction that really plays itself out between the two. You know, with a king, he looks to the masses. He demands loyalty, demands obedience, but a wayward soldier can be done away with and forgotten. The father, when a son or a daughter wanders and is wayward, the father is never okay with that. They always want their child to come home. It's a different type of love. I came across this quote in my studies that I thought was appropriate this morning. It says, the difference between a king's affection for his people and a father's love for his children is that in the nature of things, a king's love cannot be individualized, but a father's love always is. A king sees men in the mass, but as the old saint had it, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. So hear me, wherever you are today, no matter where your heart is, he loves you. And I hope you can leave here today once again in awe of a father's love. It's impossible for me to read this parable and not think about my dad, who is a prodigal in his own right, went through a season of his life where he made choices that were more about himself than those around him. And I have memories of seeing him going through that fall and living in that state of despair and the challenges that it created for his life. But then he came to his senses and he realized that those choices had led him to a difficult place. And he said, I need to go a new way. And he went back to the Father in a spirit of confession, in a spirit of humility and servanthood. And he was restored and continues to be one of the greatest examples of transformation I've ever seen in my life. And I think back on my relationship with my dad. And whether he was a prodigal or whether he was a son who had returned home. I am so grateful that I can close my eyes and think of a long list of memories. Whether it was coming off the field of a baseball game or my wedding day or the birth of my children or in the final days of his life, a constant example of a father that is ready to love you no matter what. What a gift. And if you've been fortunate enough to have that gift or you've craved it, 
your whole life. The gospel tells us that those moments point us to a heavenly love that surpasses them all. And so what is the response today, church? Wherever you are, wherever your heart, get up and go and run to your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you have first loved us. And so we come before you, God, many of us as wayward, broken sinners, many of us carrying a sense of perhaps resentment, wounds. God, so many different ways in which we fall short. And yet you are there to welcome us in your arms over and over and over again. And so God, our commitment to you today is that no matter where we are, no matter what season, no matter what circumstances, we will run to you. And we commit ourselves to represent your incredible love to the world around us. Whether it's the people within our home, the people within our community, or the people scattered around the world, may us be, let us be anchored in your love so that we can show it to the world around us. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.